From Gimlet Media, this is Startup. I'm Lisa Chow. A couple months into reporting on Dove Charney, I'd gotten into this routine. Every week, I'd fly from New York to L.A. The night before, after I put my kids to bed, I'd pack a backpack with my recorder, a change of clothes, and try to get a few hours of sleep before heading to the airport. And that's pretty much where the routine would end. When I'd get off the plane and meet Dove, I really had no idea what the day would be like. We could be driving to factories or taking pictures of L.A. for Dove's new marketing campaign. Or Dove could be in one of his moods, where he walls himself off like a surly teenager and tells me I'm asking foolish questions. One day, I just landed, and I went to meet Dove at his new factory. At this point in our reporting, he'd hired a team of sewers and was making T-shirts for a handful of customers. I saw him pacing the rows of sewing machines and approached him with my microphone. When he saw me, he looked annoyed and waved me away, storming off with his phone on his ear. I stood off to the side of the factory and waited. I'll take this moment to warn you that there's some strong language in this episode and also references to allegations of sexual assault. I wasn't exactly sure what to do, and so I took a few steps toward him again. I'm just putting some... When are you... Like, try to know how to work with me. I know. Tell me. Okay, Talk to me. Merge into me. I'm running a real business. This isn't a fake show where I'm, like, pretending to start it up. I'm fucking holding a lot of people here. I totally okay, understand. So don't, tell me. Like, what... poke into me so fast. You guys got months. Finesse it. You'll be much better off. You'll get a more authentic situation. You're like... Hey, how are you? It's like you're on a date and you're trying to kiss me. Like, back off. I just sat down. Okay? Take it easy. Okay, just you merge came in. You came in. This is your problem, not mine. I know, I know how to do this. I can do it for you. You see your subject. Caress into it. Don't, like, ah! No one needs that. It's wasting time. Okay? Give me a second. I just drove down in traffic. Two phones, call waiting, walk in, pulling things in, and you're like, wow, give me, I'm on the phone. <laughs> you know, like, let me finish, okay? Understand, when a man's on the phone too, it's a, it's a or a woman, I, you know, close the same thing. Hi, come. Then, immediately after, Dove looked over his shoulder, gave me a smile, and said, come on, follow me. Dove's moods are very unpredictable. The more time I spend with him, the more different sides of his personality emerge. But the less I feel like I really know who he is. I'm not the first person to have this experience. People have told me they spent years working with Dove, thinking he was one kind of person, and then something happened, and their view of him changed. And if you had a bad experience with Dove, sometimes it was hard to convince others that Dove really had that side to him. Dove was adored by thousands of his workers, but he was also accused of sexual harassment by several young women who worked at the company. For a long time, that disconnect raised a lot of questions about what was really going on inside American Apparel. Today on the show, we're gonna talk about a particular time in the company's life, when American Apparel went from being a privately held company to a public one. Dove started having to answer to a board of directors and was coming under greater scrutiny for his management style and behavior with employees which included claims of sexual harassment. We're gonna be talking about the board's concerns and also problems at the company between Dove and his employees, some of which have never been shared publicly before.
before meeting Dove Charney, what, what did you know of him? I didn't know a lot about Dove Charney before he actually came to me. And so I suppose I knew what most people knew, which was that he was this sort of crazy Canadian who had come to the U.S. and built this T-shirt company and had a bit of a reputation as a, you know, a wild man. But he wasn't really that much on my radar screen. And then one day he showed up in my office. This is Alan Mayer. For many years, Alan was a journalist. He wrote for the Wall Street Journal, was an editor at Newsweek. But by the time Alan met Dove, he was well into his career in PR as a crisis manager. Alan's been described as one of Hollywood's most prominent crisis specialists. And he's worked with a lot of people. Britney Spears, Rush Limbaugh, Tom Cruise, and Dove Charney. Dove showed up at Alan's office in 2005, a year after an article was published in Jane magazine, the article where a young reporter described how Dove masturbated in front of her several times. Alan remembers talking about it with Dove. I said, well, what happened? I mean, you know, is it true? And he told me a story about how, well, yes, it was true, but what she left out of the story was that she was into it also and all of this other stuff. And I said, please, I mean, you're a grown-up. When a reporter comes to see you, and I don't care how interested she seems to be in you or how consensual the situation is, you don't bleep the reporter. Um, I didn't say bleep, but I've gotten older and more discreet. Um, And he argued back. that, Well, no, I mean, why should I have to? And I finally said to him, you know, that's the way, you know, the world is organized. And simply to ignore it is going to bring upon you the kind of trouble you have right now. And he grudgingly conceded that that might be the case. And, um, and he became a client of mine. Over the months they worked together, Alan got to know Dove. They talked about Dove's hopes to take the company public, growing the business, the craft of making a T-shirt. He could talk for hours about weaving yarn. And he did. And he knew the intimate details of his business from creating the garments to designing the fashions to, you know, selling to the wholesale distributors. And then, you know, he was thoroughly engaged, you know, uh, every cell of his being. And it was very impressive to me. A little worrisome, but... What was worrisome about that? Well, just that, as I say, his attitudes uh, about women seemed very adolescent. And I know that... A lot of the women I knew at the time, including my wife, would give me a bit of a hard time for defending Dove or being, you know, uh, his guy, if you will. But it was worth the effort because everything else he was doing was, was so positive. One day, a while into knowing Dove, Alan got a call from some lawyers. And they started asking me questions about my background. And I finally said, what is this? Why are you, you know... And they said, oh, well, you know, we're doing due diligence. And I said, for what? And they said, well, you know, for you to be on the board of American Apparel. And I said, excuse me? And they said, well, didn't Dove tell you? And I said, he had mentioned a year or two ago that they might go public and he would like me to be on the board. And they said, oh, well, yeah, that's what's happening. And I thought, well, it would have been nice for him to call me and let me know it was going forward. That's classic Dove. Um, and it turned out that, yes, the company was, was, was going public and, Uh, The deal that Dove had with the backers was that I guess he got to name four board members, and and I was one of them. Alan will be the first to admit he doesn't have the typical background for a board member of a public company. They're usually senior executives at large companies or people in finance. But Dove figured the investment firm that was taking the company public would appoint a bunch of stiff suits to the board, guys who didn't really understand him. 
so he made sure to choose people with some personality. We reached out to 11 former American Apparel board members. Only Alan Mayer and one other board member talked with us on the record. I should say up front here that both of them are defendants in a lawsuit that Dove filed. The other board member we spoke to was also appointed by Dove. He was one of Dove's favorite writers, a guy named Robert Green. And when the two first met, Robert felt an immediate kinship. He's a character, and I like characters. I, I don't know why. I just like weirdos, people who are different. And he fit the, the profile. And I think he liked me. And, you know, I must admit, it's flattering. At that point, um, my book was doing pretty well, but I wasn't really well known. So it was quite good, uh, you know, a stroke for my ego because he was such a huge fan. Robert Greene writes books with titles like The 33 Strategies of War and The Art of Seduction. But he doesn't seem like a particularly macho guy. Hello. Hi. I met him at his home in Los Angeles. He's a little scruffy, tall with glasses, spends most of his days writing and hanging out with his cat, Brutus. Not exactly someone groomed for the boardroom. Something he was well aware of. I made it clear, Dove, I don't know anything about business. I can help you with strategy. I know people. I know how awful people can be. I can help you with awful people. That's my specialty. Um, But I don't know my head from my ass when it comes to numbers. Robert's been a screenwriter, a hotel receptionist, a translator. And he had noticed these jobs had one thing in common. There were always weird power dynamics at work. And so to help people navigate those dynamics, Robert wrote a book called The 48 Laws of Power. Dove will often recite quotes from this book at board meetings, to friends, to us. We asked Robert to read from it. He flips to Law 27. Play on people's need to believe to create a cult-like following. People have an overwhelming desire to believe in something. Become the focal point of such desire by offering them a cause, a new faith to follow. Keep your words vague but full of promise. Emphasize enthusiasm over rationality and clear thinking. Give your new disciples rituals to perform. Ask them to make sacrifices on your behalf. In the absence of organized religion and grand causes, your new belief system will bring you untold power. There are other laws. Law 11, learn to keep people dependent on you. Law 32, play to people's fantasies. And law number five. Okay, law number five. So much depends on reputation. Guard it with your life. Reputation is the cornerstone of power. Through reputation alone, you can intimidate and win. Once it slips, however, you are vulnerable and will be attacked on all sides. Make your reputation unassailable. Always be alert to potential attacks and thwart them before they happen. Meanwhile, learn to destroy your enemies by opening holes in their own reputations. Then stand aside and let public opinion hang them. By the time Robert joined the Board of American Apparel, he'd known Dove for a few years. He'd become a kind of informal consultant and was used to Dove's calls about issues at the company, about conflicts he might be having. And then the other thing, of course, because I wrote The Art of Seduction and Dove is who he is, uh, he wanted to talk a lot about that. He wanted to talk about women and seducing and things like that. Um, I wasn't so gung-ho about talking to him about that because I don't know why, I was a little bit skittish. 
he would call me late at night and I would think he'd be calling me for advice and then he would end up he's talking about you know women problems and stuff as if I'm going to help him with that. So initially so he was talking about people who were causing him grief and he was talking about women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um I mean really um what else is there to talk about for Dove, you know? I mean, he's obsessed with his business. That's all he lives for 24-7 and sex, you know? So that was pretty much his life back then. Dove denies these conversations happened. Back in 2007, when Robert and Alan joined the board of the newly public American Apparel, Inc., there were a lot of issues to manage. Within a year, American Apparel had opened 80 new stores. The company was now operating 260 stores around the world. All that growth happened at a bad time. The financial crisis hit in 2008. A year later, immigration authorities audited the company, and American Apparel lost thousands of undocumented employees who had been working at the factory. Its workforce was decimated, and it took the company several months to rebuild and train new garment workers costing hundreds of millions of dollars in the process. The company's stock price, at its peak in 2007, was $15. By 2010, it had sunk to 75 cents. One problem the board noticed was that there weren't a lot of experienced people high up at the company. Board member Alan Mayer said Dove wanted to do everything on his own without bringing in people with more expertise. According to Alan, Dove had set up a structure where he was indispensable, He made all the decisions and surrounded himself with all these young people who couldn't really question him. There was Dove, and there were a bunch of kids, basically. And, you know, we would pressure him to bring in, you know, grown-ups, as we said. And he would, you know, under protest, he would do it, and then they would, he would make life miserable for them, and they would leave. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal, Dove called one of these grown-ups, a newly installed CFO, a, quote, complete loser. The CFO resigned. So beyond the general counsel and the chief financial officer and the head of manufacturing, all of whom were experienced, just about everybody else at the company was younger and less experienced than Dove. So if he got hit by a bus, the company would be in serious, serious trouble. And so it made the board, I think, reluctant to move against him without very, very good reason. Board members like Alan and Robert viewed the kids' culture as a bad thing. But the kids, employees in their 20s, didn't see it that way. Many of them felt they owed their careers to Dove. They were learning, taking on responsibility they wouldn't have had at most other companies. One of those people was Ryan Holiday. He's an author and a PR guy. One of his clients is former board member Robert Green. He was 20 years old when he started working for Dove, and he eventually became director of marketing at American Apparel. The way Ryan saw it, Dove bringing in young talent at lower salaries was a way to save money and pay garment workers higher than market wages. American Apparel, given that it it refused to sort of exploit its factory workers, had to get really creative uh, with everyone else that it, it hired. So, you know, when you pay the workers 25 cents an hour, you can afford to hire, you know, a marketing director for three or four hundred thousand dollars a year Um, when you're paying them $13 or $14 an hour, and you have them actually on full-time payroll, I think you have to have a more open-minded, unique approach to recruiting talent. And so, you know, most of the people at American Apparel were much younger, 
you know, many of us were probably much less qualified than maybe who would have got hired at a, at a similar company. But a lot of those people ended up being great. Not clearly not all of them, but, uh, but a lot of them did. American Apparel on its face is an insane idea, right? It's, uh, we're going to make our own clothes. It's not going to have a logo on it. We're going to pay the workers a fair wage. We're going to uh, do our own marketing and advertising. We're going to be based in downtown Los Angeles. You know, we're going to do all these things. Um, and we're going to run our own stores and sell our own product there. This is crazy, right? But it worked. And it worked at progressively larger levels for, you know, almost two decades. If anyone could pull off running a company staffed almost exclusively by young, eager beginners, it was Dove, because he was involved in almost every decision at every level. He decided what images went on the website, how the cut of a t-shirt should look. He'd walk through the factory and make quality corrections, snipping away stray threads, checking the stitching on a seam. He posted his cell phone number online and would take any call from anyone, anytime. We talked to one woman who called Dove for help when a circuit broke in her house. Ryan told me when he got into a car crash, Dove told him, you were probably thinking about work. I'll pay for the repairs. Creative director Marsha Brady told me, if you're in jail and you've got only one call to make, call Dove Charney because he'll pick up and help you. For Dove, there was almost no distinction between his personal life and the company. Again, Ryan Holiday. I remember there was one moment, um, I'd been there a couple years, and he would call me and then fall asleep on the phone. And we would be talking and then he would talk until he fell asleep. And I realized that he didn't actually need to talk. It wasn't that it was so busy and then he was talking and he fell asleep. Although I'm sure he, he's worked himself so hard he would do that. It was more that I think he just didn't want a few minutes of silence. And I remember that sort of helped me understand who he was. Yeah. I mean, when you say understand who he was, like what 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 was that? Well, that it's 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 lonely. I think he just called me so I would talk him to sleep. What does that mean? You know, <laughs> I've never. Uh, you know what I mean? It's just uh, it's. I'd never dealt with anything like that before. I was like, oh. This is a business, sure, but it's a f something more than a business. It's feeling more than just a business place in your life. The first time I met Dove, he said, I was American Apparel. I am American Apparel. That's how he saw it when he was CEO. And that's how he saw it in March of this year more than a year after he'd been fired from American Apparel and was starting up a new company. Dove didn't want anyone to tell him how to run his business or how to live his life. But his habit of sleeping with employees was causing another problem for the company in the years before and after going public, lawsuits. In 2011, five more women sued Dove for sexual harassment. Robert Green remembers going to the factory to talk with Dove about the lawsuits, he said Dove showed him email exchanges he'd had with one of the women suing him. He showed me 
documents that clearly reveal to me that this was bogus. So that what was the evidence that like emails and things like that? I don't really remember exactly what it was, but it really convinced me and other people who were there. So, um, you know, that kind of go well. Maybe he is right. Maybe um, he is a target unfairly for people who are just trying to make a lot of money off of him. I, I, I mean, wonder- the other thing you have to understand, I'm sorry, about the yeah, women is, is it's difficult. It's very difficult because he was surrounded by a lot of women who adored him and were very positive about him. So, you know, that skews your impression of a person. And it did. It, had, it, it influenced me. Were they defending him against, like, the lawsuits and some kind of, them, of... Some of them were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even if Dove's relationships with employees were consensual, as Dove claimed, Robert Green felt like he needed to say something, as a board member and also as a friend. I told him on several occasions, numerous occasions, you've got to back off on this. You've got to, like, go have... I, you know, I'm not uh, the police... You go have as much sex as you want. No one's going to stop you. But don't do it with people in the company, you know? Just, if you're that horny, hire, you know, call girls or just go meet women on whatever. But stop in the company. And what, what, how did he respond? Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, also, I don't have any life outside of American Apparel. Where else am I going to meet anybody? Again, Dove denies this conversation happened. Alan says the board started to lose confidence in Dove's management. I mean, there was a move by a number of the board members in 2011 to um, investigate more. And I blocked it. And the reason I blocked it was it wouldn't make anything better. And if we were successful in discovering something that would push him out of the company. At that point, I don't think the company could have survived his departure. But Dove's presence was creating problems as well. Alan Mayer said when the company wanted to borrow money, lenders were wary. Very few reputable financial institutions want to lend money to the company, in large part because of Dove's reputation. And it's interesting how even at the highest levels of finance, Stuff they read on Gawker will affect, you know, as much as a Dun & Bradstreet credit report, the fact that this guy had this reputation as this pervy, skeevy guy meant that, the, you know, the, the, the J.P. Morgan Chases of the world didn't want to do business with him. And so we wound up having to borrow money at credit card rates. And that was killing the company. I told Dove about what Alan Mayer said about American Apparel's borrowing costs being at credit card levels. What do you make of the high interest rates? Who cares? 10, 11%? With all of it or just some of it? Well, I mean, the I average borrow, The rate. average borrowing was, it was, it was single digit. Who cares? Who cares? You, the business is successful, you refinance it. You take the loans, you, you're coming out of the recession. Shame on you. You, you sanctimonious person. Everybody was paying high. Any business that was that had debt coming out of that, 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 some any business that came out 
of the, that recessionary period that wasn't blue chip. McDonald's couldn't even finance coffee machine. Yes, the financial crisis did make it hard for American Apparel to borrow. But years later, the company's borrowing costs were still through the roof. In 2014, the interest rate American Apparel was paying on its long-term debt was 15%, while competitors like Gap and Haynes were paying closer to 6%. But Dove says it doesn't matter. I was running a $600 million business successfully with positive cash flow. Hands off, morons. Hands off. With the EBITDA, the earnings in 2013, they were at 36 in 2012, went down to 10 and 13, went back up to 40. Okay, to dive in here. EBITDA stands for Earnings Before Interest, Taxes, Depreciation, and Amortization. It's a proxy people and business use to evaluate a company's fundamental business model. In a theoretical world where taxes don't exist, you never borrowed money, and machines work forever, are you making more money than you're spending? But it's only a good proxy if your debt is in a normal range and you're paying a reasonable interest rate. The only way the company was able to pay its bills for a while was borrowing more money. Charlie O'Shea is an analyst for the credit rating agency Moody's. In 2013, he rated American Apparel. We have a situation where the company never grew its profitability sufficient to be able to cover its expenses. It's akin to somebody running up their credit cards and then they can't make even the minimum payments and then another credit card shows up in the mail and they go out and they get a cash advance on that and pay off the other one. You can do that for a while, but at some point, no one's going to lend you money anymore and you're not going to be able to pay back what you already owe. If you talk to Dove about this time that Charlie's discussing, 2013, Dove says everything was going to get better. The company was just about to turn a corner. Charlie says... Maybe. But from where he stood, the company's financial situation was pretty much as perilous as it could be. Charlie said Moody's gave American Apparel the lowest first-time rating it had ever given a retail company. We assigned a new rating of CAA1, which is very rare at Moody's. Typically, companies that we rate are rated higher on a first-time basis. So the company was already... I don't know what the right adjective would be, but the company was already in some form of distress. Dove's friend and American Apparel board member Robert Green was watching everything unfold from the boardroom, and his doubts were growing. Things start piling up where there's more and more stories, there are more and more lawsuits, and the pattern just kept repeating often enough, and the stories got worse, that you realize that maybe you weren't right in your assessment of some of these cases. And maybe even the one that he showed me the emails I had a very skewered impression, and maybe that person was legitimate. I couldn't tell. So um, basically what happened was it became evident that there was really something behind some of them. What was behind those lawsuits? That's coming up after the break. Welcome back to Startup. The sexual harassment cases against Dove started coming out in 2005. In the years that followed, more women came forward, and the accusations were even more disturbing. 
These later cases included accusations of outright sexual assault. An employee said she was forced to perform sex acts on Dove while she was being held at his apartment in New York. Another woman said she was made to masturbate in front of him. One employee said Dove threatened her after she refused to have sex with him. Dove has denied the allegations. Many of the cases were resolved through private arbitration. We reached out to many of the women who filed lawsuits against Dove. They either didn't get back to us or said that even if they wanted to talk, they couldn't discuss their case. But there was one woman who agreed to talk to us. Her name is Marissa Wilson. What happened between you and Dove that compelled you to sue him? That's something that I cannot comment on today or any day. And, and why, why exactly can't you comment on it? I'm not at liberty to. I've been silenced. Marissa can't talk about the details because she signed a settlement agreement with American Apparel. She's also bound by several other documents she signed when she worked at the company. By 2007, American Apparel started requiring employees to sign several legal documents. Once they signed these documents, employees could not publicly talk about what went on inside the company without risking severe financial repercussions. And they were also left without much legal recourse. One of these documents was an arbitration agreement. By signing it, employees waived their right to sue in court. Disputes would instead be mediated privately in arbitration. Arbitration clauses are fairly standard in corporate America. But when a case is settled in arbitration, most testimony and judgments are confidential. So there's no public record of some of the allegations against Dove. Employees at American Apparel also had to sign agreements that were much less common, like a confidentiality agreement, which said that if an employee spoke out publicly against the company or disclosed information about aspects of their employment, they could be forced to pay damages of $1 million. Finally, there was a waiver. By signing it, employees waived all claims against the company. It's pretty standard for an employee to sign a waiver when leaving a job and getting a severance payment. But at American Apparel, employees were asked to sign waivers when they got raises or bonuses or when they changed positions. They were effectively signing away their legal claims in return for small increases in pay. Three employment lawyers reviewed the documents for us. We were told that the way American Apparel used waivers is extremely rare. One lawyer, who works on behalf of major corporations, told us it was probably legal, but she'd never seen anything like it. The lawyers also called the million-dollar provision of the confidentiality agreement extreme, overbroad, and not standard. One described it as a way of buying silence from employees. And it did. In the course of our reporting, we've had several sources decline to talk on the record because they're still fearful of violating the agreement. And American Apparel did enforce them. One woman who sued Dove was ordered to pay the company $800,000 after she went on the Today Show to talk about her sexual harassment case. So while Marissa can't speak about the details of her case against Dove and American Apparel, she can discuss the circumstances of her life in general at that time. I met Marissa at her lawyer's office in L.A. She's friendly but quiet, with a nervous smile. She started working at American Apparel in 2010, after meeting an employee who liked her style and asked her if she'd be interested in a job. 
The offer took Marissa completely by surprise. I knew that it was a place that was difficult to get hired at because uh, it seemed like only uh, very attractive, interesting people worked there, from what I could tell. And uh, it was a place that a lot of people wanted to work at, and uh, they wanted me to work there. I got recruited, so I did not seek it, but I was very flattered to have the opportunity presented to me. And what was the job? I was a sales associate, a retail sales associate in the store in San Diego. At the time, Marissa and her mom were living in low-income housing in San Diego. It was just the two of them, and her mom had recently been laid off from her job as a social worker. She had received word that her entire branch was going to be closing. She worked in a welfare-to-work program, and so she knew that um, she had a couple months' notice. But I got recruited for American Apparel shortly after she received that news. And so I hadn't really been looking for a job, but one found me in what I thought to be uh, perfect timing. Her mom was sick and struggled to secure another job, which meant they were now both depending on Marissa, an 18-year-old who hadn't finished high school, to provide for the family. It felt like an enormous amount of pressure. I had always been um, in a sort of caregiver role to my mother. She was ill when I was younger, but uh, that job very quickly became the most important thing in my life, and maintaining it at any cost was important to me so that I knew that my mother could have a place to stay, a place to live, food, um, and that I could consistently provide for her. That was the most important thing to me. She'd been working at the San Diego store a couple of months when she heard Dove was going to be stopping by. This wasn't just someone coming to look at the store. This was the man. This was who started this company. I didn't really know what to expect. And this is the point in the story where Marissa would no longer comment. But we have another source, a report from the arbitrator who considered Marissa's case. This report, which was not given to us by either Marissa or her lawyer, states that the evidence presented by Marissa was compelling and believable. It also describes some of the evidence presented by Dove and American Apparel as, quote, not credible. And the story it lays out is upsetting. The document details how upon meeting Marissa in the American Apparel store, Dove invited her to come to L.A. with him for a week-long merchandising training. That training took place at his house. In the report, Dove says he connected with her energy and wanted her to help him turn stores around. He didn't allow her to return home for a suitcase and told her that she'd be staying at his house. I'm going to read a section directly from the report. It states, quote, Almost immediately after arrival, Wilson was taken to Charney's bedroom and left alone with him. He was lying on his bed and asked if she were an exhibitionist or a voyeur, neither of which words she understood. He asked her to show him her breasts, which she did. She had no sexual or romantic interest in him. He was, as she put it, the age of my dad. He gave her a vibrator and told her to use it on herself. He then told her to perform oral sex on him. She could not think, and was, as she described it, in a blackout survival mode. He then dismissed her. She felt hollow and ashamed and could not process what happened. End quote. According to the report, ten similar incidents occurred while she was at Dove's house. The report states that Marissa felt, quote, altered, and that Dove's behavior was, quote, disgusting and dehumanizing. But she thought this was how the fashion industry worked that it was part of her job. Marissa was far from her home in San Diego and didn't own a car 
or even know how to drive. The arbitration report also describes testimony from Dove's housekeeper in favor of Dove and American Apparel against Marissa. The housekeeper testified that Marissa said she loved Dove and was happy to be living at the house. But then, when the housekeeper was asked to pick Marissa out of a photo lineup, she couldn't. Dove's housekeeper was found to be not credible. After three weeks at the house, Marissa called her brother to come get her and take her back to San Diego. The report states when Marissa told Dove she was leaving, he offered her a $1.50 an hour pay raise and a $500 bonus in exchange for signing a release form, which she did. The report says Marissa kept working at the San Diego store, but quit a month later. She signed a severance agreement, which included a payment of $800 and released American Apparel of all claims made by her against the company. The arbitrator who heard Marissa's case was considering this question. Were the releases Marissa signed valid? The arbitrator found they were not and that Marissa's sexual harassment allegations could go forward. Dove was ousted as CEO just a couple months later, and American Apparel decided to settle with Marissa for $2 million. Dove says that had he still been CEO, he would not have settled and would have presented more evidence in his own defense. For Marissa, the money from the settlement helped her family, but it didn't erase her experience. I've mostly dealt with everything privately, and so a lot of the things that I uh, experienced were not uh, known to even the people that were closest to me, and so uh, I... I would love to be able to give a voice to women because I think I think it's wrong to be silenced. I mean, obviously there would be there's a potential risk to you talking about your experience in American apparel. How how does it feel that there is even this risk? It feels like an impossible weight that I'll never be able to rid myself of. I can't speak about my experience at this company, and I've accepted that, but it's still something that I have to deal with privately, and it's something that affects me every day. The allegations leveled against Dove were serious and persistent. It got me thinking, when the CEO is being accused of sexual harassment or assault, how do the employees process it? How do they explain it away? Because many did. There were 10,000 people working at American Apparel, and many of them were radically devoted to Dove. They respected him because he had a habit of lifting people up, young workers, immigrant workers, Many of the upper-level employees were women. How could he turn around and act differently behind closed doors? It's easier to believe that he was a target of people trying to extort money. That was the line he was giving, and it's the way the people closest to him interpreted the allegations. Dove's inappropriate, crazy. He wears his heart on his sleeve and sleeps with his employees. Of course he makes for an easy target. How did you reconcile the Dove you knew to the Dove that was portrayed in some of the sexual harassment lawsuits? Oh, my God. This, this goes again to the protective side of myself, the conflicted side of myself. 
because I know how caring, how loving he can be, how sweet, how funny. This is Amy Talabazade, who we heard from in the last episode, a product developer at American Apparel who dated Dove for a year. And it would drive me crazy. I couldn't sleep at night to see what I was seeing online or like on TV with ABC News. Like it just would drive me crazy because it wasn't true. And then when we try to get the evidence, put together the truth, nobody wants the fucking truth. They want the, we, we want the guy who looks like he's jerking off on his employees. That's a good story. Nobody cared about how many jobs is he creating in America? Did we ever talk about how he's creating rights for, for the people that need health care, that need workable wages? Like, oh my God, like what's, where's the real story? It would bother the shit out of me. And I just, it came to a point where it's like, I can't, how can I fight this? Most employees I talked with about the accusations were not as steadfast as Amy. They didn't give me a simple answer because it's not a simple situation. We like to think of people as being good or bad, but bad guys can do good things and good guys can do bad things. The idea that Dove could be both a charming visionary and also an abusive boss, that he could give women and immigrants opportunities and also sexually harass employees. Holding all that together, it's confusing And when you're working closely with someone like that, it's hard to know what to do about it. I recently met an employee who told us she had bad experiences working for Dove. She never sued him or American Apparel. In fact, this is the first time she has spoken publicly about it. She asked us not to use her real name, so we'll call her Danielle. We also altered her voice. Danielle worked at American Apparel for nearly a decade. In her role, she worked closely with Dove and got to know him well. She told us that Dove has a way of manipulating people. And while working for Dove, she often felt trapped, sometimes literally. Danielle described one time when she was working late at Dove's house. She wanted to go home for the night, but she told me he wouldn't let her. Did Dove lock the door in terms of not letting you leave the house? He never locked his house doors in Los Angeles. But I think it's it's more like the persuasive side of it. It's more like holding you in a different way. It's more like, I don't know, manipulation might be the word. Can you not go? Can you not leave? Can you stay with me? Is that okay? I really feel like lonely right now. Can we just watch a movie? Can we just cuddle and hold hands? And you are uncomfortable at that point. You do want to go. Yeah, no, listen, I'm really sorry. I'm going now. No, please. And then, like, there's the point that I'm going to start holding you. To demonstrate how Dove would hold her to make her stay, Danielle reaches over and aggressively grabs producer Luke Malone around the wrist. No, please stay. I really want you to stay. Does that make a difference? Like, I'm telling you, now you have to stay, please. Why do you have to go? Like, what is so important for you that you have to go? Really? Then go, go. 
go. And you're like, listen, I really don't want to get in a fight with you. Can you just calm down for a minute? All right, so can you stay? Is that okay? Please. And then like, there's like this whole like going on you and you're like, wait, like, like, listen, I'm going to stay, but can you calm yourself for a minute? And the whole thing keeps on going. And by the time you realize, it's just like, you're already all over me, you know? So, like, does he really need to lock the door? <laughs> so he would do that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's what I said. If you go back in his brain, it's like, you really wanted to stay with me, actually, don't you? Say that you want to stay. You want to stay, right? Say it, say it, say it, say it. I want to stay. So you like, uh, no, say it for us. I promise I'm not gonna tell you. Can you say I want to stay? Could you disagree with me and say, say it, say it. And you're like, I want to stay. Very simple. So I think what's even more insane about the idea of this happening at all is that at the end of the day, you're his employee. You know? Actually, you're not his employee, you're his friend. We are friends, right? We all go friends at the end of the day. Let's just play. I'm not your boss anymore, now I'm your girlfriend. You would say I'm your girlfriend. Yeah. We all girlfriends together. Let's play. Let's all play. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about jobs. Let's all play and be happy. Why do you have to go home for? This is so much fun here. Your mom is not here. Your dad is not here. You don't even have a family. Come on. So you're like, oh, this is fun. You know, maybe I should stay. Danielle told us that she found it hard to challenge Dove. He had a temper. And sometimes that temper would spill over into violence. She said the aggression would come out of nowhere and quickly escalate. There were the times he threw a shoe or a phone at her, barely missing her head when he got annoyed, or pushed her over when she tried to leave for the day. The most alarming story she told, during one argument, Dove got so mad he ripped her shirt. She hadn't agreed to let us record yet when she told us this story. But when she met us, she showed us the shirt. It's a dark gray American Apparel boat neck tee. It's ripped from the collar down the middle so that it hangs completely open like a vest. After showing us the shirt, she agreed to let us start recording. Every time I looked at it, it creates this sort of strength inside of me, but also a lot of anger and also um, a bit of shame for not doing anything back then. The shirt ripping incident happened when Danielle and Dove got into a fight about a printer. Uh, we were in his kitchen, and I started saying that one of the main person at graphics department was not, maybe I said he's not doing his job well, and it triggered something that he didn't agree, and maybe I said something back. 
And I said, you know what? Okay, great. I'm out of here. Why don't you work on your own? And when I said, I'm out of here, that's when he grabbed me, you're not going anywhere. And I think the shirt peeled a little bit. And I said, you're ripping my shirt. And he's like, I can do whatever I want. I don't fucking give a fuck about that shirt. And then that's when, you know, like, and I, and he kept on going. I'm like, please don't do that. And now you, like, I started panicking about what was going. And I said, now I'm really out of here and kept on saying that. Like, I have to go. You, you, you're just weeping. Like, you just, like, you don't even know anymore what's happening. And you really want to go. I just remember now, my memory is just going back to remember that every time I said I'm leaving, it would be a moment that would trigger that desperation for always having somebody with him, never being left alone. And that can trigger some scary something that gets him really nervous, dense. But I was not able to leave the house until he realized that I was completely calm and no longer crying and not in despair the way I was. And I I remember going home and him like calling me all the way through it and like making sure that I would go to sleep and not not call anyone and not, you know, not do anything, you know. And as a pattern, every time he did something bad to me or any other girl, the day after would be nothing but just a lot of apology letters and words and sorry and down on his knees and can you forgive me, this will never happen again, I'm so sorry, I promise you, I promise you we're going to be friends forever or like, you know, American Apparel is a growing company, we're going to die working for this company and, you know, we're all going to grow older, nobody's going to get married, you know, like we're all going to leave around this company, we're all going to hold hands together and live forever. After this happened, Danielle was shaken, but she didn't feel like she could just quit. American Apparel was sponsoring her work visa and covering her car payments, insurance, and cell phone bill. She eventually started working for the company outside of L.A. and away from Dove, helping to open new stores. She left American Apparel in 2010. Danielle says she's gone to therapy to try to get over what happened to her, but it's clear that the memories sit close to the surface. A lot of times when I walked out of that office, I would drive on the streets of L.A. and watch the stickers placed on the back of LAPD cars that would say, there's no excuse to domestic violence. And when I, every time I read that, I almost want to stop that car and say, can you please help me? That's how I felt. That's exactly how I felt. Like, helpless. Like, I felt like, you know, like when you, like, want to knock on a, on a police door and say, you know that thing that it's written on your bumper stick? It's happening to me. Fuck the fucking sexual harassment. Do you understand? How about the physical aggression? How about hiding behind and, like, like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. You're such a cute girl. I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. No. No. You did what you did. You hit me. You hit me on the face. You put a pillow on my face to suffocate my voice. 
You threw a cell phone at my face. You ripped off my shirt. You threw a pair of shoes at my face. You told me to shut up. You called me stupid. Go fuck yourself. You said those words to me. Irreparable. No, there's no money that can pay me back. You know, what I went through. The nights that I ended up crying. That my husband saw me crying. That my mother saw me crying. That I had to lie that I had to call, no, it's okay, what happened? You know, that's, that's, that's serious shit. That's very serious shit, you know. How are you gonna say that it was consensual? Prove that, try that, you know, try that. We asked Dove about all of this, and he said he was in a romantic relationship with this employee, and that, quote, nobody's lover's quarrel is going to read well. He denies he ever physically abused her. But another employee we spoke with says he did see Dove get physical with Danielle, twice. On one occasion, he remembers Dove coming at her in a rage and throwing a phone. From the beginning of my reporting... I told Dove we would have to discuss the sexual harassment lawsuits and his romantic relationships with employees. And initially, he said he'd talk about it at some point. For months, I tried to get Dove to agree to a taped interview. We discussed the issues many times off the record, but we always ended up in the same place. Dove saying his private life is private. And then one day, late summer, this was before I had talked to Danielle or Marissa, I pressed Dove about setting aside a time to talk about the issue of sexual harassment on the record. Not interested. I don't care. You've already asked about it. It's, it's not, it's, it's a waste of my time. Unless someone's willing to stand up and prove it, it's over. It hasn't been proven. I've denied it. I've won cases. <laughs> I've won every case that was litigated. I'm, I'm done with it. And I'm wasting my time talking to you about it because it's not, it doesn't, it's, you, you, you are in, your own questioning of it is reinserts it to people's minds. That's how I feel about it. It's boring. How about if I told you, though, that, you know, that people are thinking, that people, that people do think about it? How about if I told you, and you have to trust me on this? Because, like, I've talked to people. I don't care about a small percentage of people that think about it. You, you, you are more concerned about it because it's of interest to you as a media person to explore that uh, sensitive dynamic. But to me, it's not interesting. And, and people are going brain dead to all of that stuff. It's just it's the manifestation of the Internet age and, and clickbait. And there's, there's Peter Thiel had some great thoughts about it, you know, in connection to his support of Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hogan's journey against Gawker. There, is Gawker less popular today or more popular? It's less popular. People are bored of it. It's boring. It's a waste of my time. I don't have any regrets. In I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm done with that, you know? I, 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 I was exploited. That's it. I'm a victim of, 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 of that scenario. Nobody else. 
and no one has no one has proven otherwise. And you say you don't have any regrets. Um, I don't regret my humanity. No, I don't. And I believe that my private life is private and for me only. And I believe in privacy. And my personal life is not a subject of the, should not be a subject of the media or should not be exploited. And at this point, I don't really care. I know I've led a good life. I contributed to the city of Los Angeles. I was one of, the, one of the, you know, I was one of the, the, I was an employer that made a huge difference in the lives of tens of thousands of people. That's been confirmed to me in writing, letter after letter, several times a day, okay? I, I have to focus on running an amazing company. That's it. Okay, That's one, all I care one last question. You can ask it every week again, and I'll tell you again, I'm, I don't care anymore. So here, I'm going to say this off the record. I have to stop the tape here, because this part of the conversation is off the record. But it was here that things took an extremely disturbing turn. Dove became enraged in a way I have never experienced with another person. We've asked Dove to allow us to play the off-the-record portion of this conversation for you. He has not agreed to let us air this tape. I can't give specific details, but I can tell you there's a lot more to this story than I ever thought when I first started reporting. We'll get into that on the next episode of Startup. Startup is hosted by me, Lisa Chow. Our show is produced by Bruce Wallace, Luke Malone, Molly Messick, and Simone Polanin. Our senior producer is Caitlin Roberts. We are edited by Alex Bloomberg and Alexander Johns, who, by the way, had to duck out last week to do something very important, give birth to her son. A big congratulations to her and her family. Fact-checking by Michelle Harris. Special thanks to Rachel Strom, Gina Moore, Fia Benin, Gwyn Lewicki, Chloe Prasinos, Stevie Lane, Shruti Penamanani, and Kalila Holt. Mark Phillips wrote and performed our theme song. The new version of the theme song is by the absolutely stellar Bobby Lord. Build Buildings wrote and performed our special ad music. Original music by the band HotMoms.gov, which includes the Reverend John Delore, Jordan Scanella, Sam Merrick, Isamu McGregor, and Curtis Brewer. Music direction by Matthew Bowl. Martin Peralta and Andrew Dunn mixed the episode. To subscribe to the podcast, go to iTunes or check out the Gimlet Media website, gimletmedia.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Startup. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.